0: Well, go ahead and turn in your Bible to James chapter 1, verses 2 to 18. James 1, 2 through 18. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew right there in front of you. You'll find this on page 854 or 897 of the Pew Bible, depending on which printing of that you have. Last week I began a, uh, a series on the book of James with just a brief introduction uh, from the first verse, and we. Uh, noticed that James described himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ and considered the fact that he uh, was the brother of Jesus or half-brother technically and and one of the the prominent leaders of the church of Jerusalem but the way he regarded himself was as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ and that as we unpack or or begin to sort of turn the pages on this short letter that he writes here, that his central concern seems to be a genuine faith. And that's kind of what he was teeing up uh, for us. A a genuine faith. You know, some of you may have had the experience before where you see somebody uh, with something, let's say a Um, a a, a diamond pendant you know they've got a necklace with a little pendant on it or whatever and and you go it's just sparkling and and you know big even and uh you're going wow that's beautiful is it real of course it's probably not proper to ask that out loud is it like i don't know like jewelry etiquette but uh maybe you think it to yourself is that real But both the stone and the necklace can be tested to determine whether it's a real diamond or real gold. And throughout his letter, James says there are ways to tell if faith is real. That when somebody says they believe in Jesus, is that a real faith? Is that really saving faith? And one of the indicators of that is that genuine faith perseveres through trials and temptations. And that's the theme in this passage this morning from James 1, 2 to 18. And so let's look there together now. And I'm going to ask if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. James chapter 1 beginning in verse 2. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot Be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures thanks be to God for his word let's pray together well father as always we are privileged and grateful to be able to open the scriptures with the firm belief that in them you have spoken and that through them you continue to speak to us. Lord, we believe your word is living and active, that it is to us life and truth And we ask, Lord, that you would make it live to us today, that you would reveal to us the truth in it. You know, every need on every heart seated in this room and even tuned in online. And so, God, we ask that you would do as only you can do, and that by your spirit you would speak life and truth to every need and minister to hearts according to your desire for us. And so we ask that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. And as always, I ask, Lord, that you would move me out of the way And use me as an instrument to communicate to your people today. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, James writes, you will remember, to the scattered church, the church of the dispersion, um, it says in verse 1. And so this was a letter intended for circulation throughout the churches all over the known world. And in many cases, life was difficult for those Christians because they were Christian, even in the earliest years. We saw in our study last year through the book of Acts that uh, the Jews, in many cases, maybe most cases, were immediately hostile and opposed to the gospel. When Paul went to synagogues, when he went to the Jewish communities and preached the gospel, uh, they ran him off, sometimes violently, uh, and, and, and in fact, in one case, stoned him and left him for dead. And they stirred up even the uh, Roman authorities. In some cases, the leading men and women of the cities to get them opposed to him as well. That was that was the reaction of uh, the Jewish audiences that he went to first, and what we would learn over the decades, I suppose, that unfolded what would become clearer is that it was not only the Jews, but the other natives of those areas as well, the the pagans, if you will, who were opposed to Christians as well. And part of that was because paganism or polytheism, you know, the belief in many gods and the practice of worshiping many gods, it was woven into the fabric of society. Any any public gathering or even a meal in a large home would involve some sort of uh, tribute to the gods of that house or the gods of that city and that kind of thing. To refuse to honor them was every bit as offensive then as it is now. I mean, you know that it's okay for you to have your own religious beliefs. It's just not okay for you to suggest that somebody else's beliefs are not equally valid, right? You can say you believe certain things are true if you tell somebody else you believe their uh, convictions are untrue. Well, that's offensive and insulting. Guess what? It was offensive and uns- insulting in the first century too. And so uh, for, the, for the Christian who, who refused to acknowledge and, and respect the gods of someone's household or city or whatever. That was insulting at least. And in many cases, believers would consequently disengage some from uh, social activities because it involved what they believed was idolatry. They couldn't participate in honoring those gods. And so rather than, uh, than go there and be either compelled to or you know, run into that sort of conflict and so forth. They disengaged some socially, and and likewise, some on the other side of that might have a harder and harder time inviting inviting them in uh, to those settings if they knew um, they were going to be contrary in that way. That's in many ways the the, the life of a first century Christian. And you can imagine how difficult then it was, if, you, if, if, if that becomes your uh, relationship to society, you know, to other people and social organizations, uh, how that would make it difficult to conduct business, to engage in, in commerce, um, to take advantage of any of the sort of supports and, um, and that kind of thing of social structures and networks. That's the life of a Christian. Many, if not most of the recipients of James's letter would have lived under those kind of circumstances. Difficulty was a lifestyle for them. They signed on when they said, I want to follow Jesus. They signed up for that sort of abiding difficulty. So when James opens his letter, with reference to various kinds of trial. He's talking about something they understand. He has their attention. And his general train of thought in these verses that we just read uh, basically goes something like this. Consider it all joy when you encounter trials because when you're tested and you persevere, you're strengthened spiritually. When that process requires you to exercise wisdom, but you don't have the wisdom you need, ask God and he'll give it to you. If your hardships arise out of your poverty or low station in society, rejoice and boast in your exaltation because God regards you as highly esteemed and that is the status that you hold in his eyes and that you will occupy in eternity. Boast in your exaltation if you're lowly and if you're wealthy and that is being stripped away from you. Then boast in your humiliation because riches and the people who hold them are going to fade away and pass away from this earth anyway. But the one who is in Christ will abide with him forever. Rejoice in that then. He goes on to say, your steadfastness leads to a crown of life, but if you succumb to temptation, that leads to death through sin. And by the way, your sin belongs to you, so don't blame God for it. Because God's gifts in the closing verses are good and perfect. He means good for you, not evil. Of course, the rub comes sometimes in the fact that he measures good in different ways than we might. And so there are are a few concepts presented here, wisdom, poverty, and riches, the nature of God and his good intentions for us, but they all orbit around the issue of trials and temptations. And so I just want to unpack this passage under those two headings, trials and temptations. And first we'll consider trials. By the way, if you are alive, which I take it, All of you are. Some of you look like you, you know, but I could see your eyelids and so you might be right on the border. But anyway, but if you're alive, you know what it is to encounter trials and temptations. And as I said earlier, most of the recipients of of, uh, this letter lived a lifestyle of difficulty. Their decision to follow Jesus signed them up for hardship. And so verse two begins with the phrase, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. All joy. The NIV translates uh, this as consider it pure joy. It's like getting 100% juice. Right, No sugar added, no additives or preservatives, no high fructose corn syrup, just pure juice. And James says, regard trials as 100% pure joy. There is no non-joy in it. It's all joy. And if this were not the word of God, That would sound outright ridiculous, wouldn't it? I mean, if if this weren't coming from God and somebody just said that, that would sound absurd, exaggerated because trials are trying, right? I mean, they are unpleasant and painful, difficult. And so maybe we would have an an easier time perhaps buying into it if he said, um, find the silver lining in the cloud when you encounter trials. Look at the bright side when you're going through trials. Focus on the positive while you're going through trials. So that's challenging still, right? Because sometimes I'm in the mood to just gripe and moan about my trials and I'd like you to join me in it. But I might might be able to find the silver lining and so forth, but pure joy just sounds unreasonable. Is it okay to be that honest? Because I know you're thinking it anyway. (laughs) But see, he doesn't say that trials and troubles are entirely pleasant or even entirely joyful. He just says they can be counted as joy. They, they all get credited to the plus column because of what they're working in you. You know, if a group of thugs uh, drove by and threw uh, rolls of quarters at you, um, that would that would hurt, right? That would that might do some serious injury. You'd be bruised, but you could put all the quarters in the piggy bank. I mean, they all get added to the plus column. And joy isn't. I mean, trials are not entirely joyful, but they can be counted all as joy. They all go into joy column because they're producing in us. What it is he really wants out of us, and strengthening our faith in the process. You know, I thought as I was preparing this of uh, in the army, uh, they have an elite training program called uh, Ranger School, which many of you have heard of, perhaps a leadership school uh, for pretty elite leaders. I actually, opened up uh, other branches of the military as well. But it's 61 days long, 61 days of pretty much misery. There may be a couple of people in the room who have actually been through it. They might attest to that. But it is physically grueling as all of those kind of elite military training programs are. You know, demanding things of them they think they can't possibly go on delivering. They deprive them of sleep for days on end. They deprive them of food for the same days on end. They, they put them in situations where conflict arises between them to see how they're gonna deal with that. They put them in highly stressful situations where they have to think quickly and clearly when they're so tired they can hardly think at all anymore. And that's day one. (laughs) Actually, I don't know that that's true, but you know, it's like, it's 61 days of that. and, And most people don't finish it. Many quit, some get injured, but for those that do finish it, they receive the Ranger tab, little badge of sorts they wear on their left shoulder and everywhere they go in the army, uh, people look at them a little bit differently, even if they don't acknowledge it, because they know he's ranger qualified. And see all all the misery and the pain of that is counted as good, not only because of the reward of the ranger tab itself, because it produced the soldier worthy of that reward. You see, nobody goes to ranger school for the sunshine in Fort Benning, Georgia. You ever been to Fort Benning? You were ordered to go there, weren't you? (laughs) Nobody goes to relax or be comfortable. They go knowing of the misery and the pain and the hardship but it's all good because of what it yields and what it produces in the person. And so it goes with the believer that trial produces in us, hardship produces in us. More and more of the likeness of Jesus is what we're intended to to be in the first place. And so Peter can say in 1 Peter 4:13, "Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed." Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4:17 and 18, "For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. And likewise, James says here, count it all joy when you encounter trials. But he addresses not only trials here, but also temptations. And we, as we were reading, saw the word temptations first mentioned in verse 13, where it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It's uh, verbs, uh, entirely verb form in that particular verse. But that's the first time we see mention of that, unless you have the King James Version or the New King James Version. I think the RSV would be the same and perhaps some other translations. And if you're looking at one of those, you see, Verse 12 reads a little differently than the one that I read. It says there, Blessed is the man who endures temptations, not trials. The reason for that is that in this passage, the word trials and the word temptations are the same Greek word. Or the word trials and the word tempt. Because, like I said, in this particular passage, it's used as a verb. But it's the same word that was used when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness at the outset of his ministry. And the implication then seems to be that this abiding and inherent hardship of being a Christian was a constant temptation to depart from Christ, to fall away from the faith. The same circumstances then, in other words, the same circumstances Constitute either trial and test on one hand or temptation on the other hand. And the difference lies in how the person responds to the adversity. Does he persevere in faith or does he fall into sin? And James is taking then kind of a, a big picture view, a macro view, and saying that real faith... Uh, Saving faith in in Christ, genuine faith, will bear evidence of his genuineness and partly in perseverance through trials. The gold, as it were, is tested and proved to be real gold. And you know, the fire cannot destroy gold. Gold. It can only prove that it is gold. If it destroys what's thrown in there, it just demonstrates it wasn't gold in the first place. And so it is with saving faith, with real genuine faith, that that there's no chance that the, the fiery trials, as it were, are going to destroy your faith. Rather, they're going to prove them to be true faith. And that's part of the implication here. And, and with that, we, we would be wise to remember that resisting temptation is supposed to be a struggle. In other words, we, we, don't, we don't only persevere through trials as we think of them when hard circumstances happen to us. What what he says here is temptation arises from within us, right? Trials happen to us and temptation comes out of us. It might be our response to the very same events, but when our sinful hearts carry us away, entice us, our desires entice us to sin, that's temptation. But when Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews talks about endurance, He talks about our struggle against sin. It ought to be, in other words, a struggle. If we are not struggling against sin, we are probably sinning way too much. If we've given up the struggle and just said, essentially, uh, oh, well, you know, God's going to forgive me anyway. Thank you, Lord. I mean, frankly, we... We ought to tremble a little bit if we find ourselves there. Because we have less uh, to fear about our sinning than we do about our comfort in a practice of sinning. Is that making sense? It made sense to Jerry, okay. Thank you, Jerry, for your encouragement. (laughs) But in other words, we we tend to think about, you know, we we understand trials or trying circumstances and when hardship just happens, and it does and it will again, right? It's like he strengthens, strengthens us through one in preparation for the next one, which will strengthen us again for the next one and so forth. But we ought not to put temptation in a different category, really, but rather the the, the temptation comes our way as regularly it does because of what's inside of us, but we ought to be resisting and fighting that as well. With the assurance, of course, that when we sin, that doesn't mean that the deal is off, that we've sort of uh, lost it that our that our faith has fallen away or anything of the sort. In fact, John says in First uh, John chapter two that I write these things that you may not sin. And if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Not that if you sin you're toast now. You know you blew it, but that you you have an advocate with the Father. But it ought to continue to be a struggle, something that we resist. And so what's true then on a, on a micro on a macro level, on a large level is, is true or true on a smaller level as well, that any, anything that, that brings you to the point where, where the, the, the question arises, will you go on trusting and obeying God? When you're, when you're faced with a difficult circumstance, when you're faced? with a temptation that seems to cause you to stumble again and again and again in the same way. Will you you trust God? Will you obey God? Anything that brings you to that point of questioning essentially is a trial or a temptation. They test our faith, but God intends for his children to pass the test. This is part of what is important for us to understand. Just like testing gold is, an intent, is intended to prove that it's gold, right? The refiner's fire cleanses of its impurities, but it proves that it's gold. He, God intends for his children to pass the test. There are no gotcha questions, no trick questions on the test. He doesn't give you a test that you're not prepared for, Okay. He doesn't do like the teacher who said it's a test on chapters one through six and now something from chapter eight's on there. You know, that you weren't prepared for. He he intends for his children to pass the test. But there are tests. There are tests. There are trials. They prove that your faith is real and makes your faith stronger in the process. And so our response to that in part ought to be to lean in to the struggle a little bit, to lean into the pain a little bit, which feels entirely counterintuitive, doesn't it? I mean, if you have a hurt ankle, you don't put much weight on that side. You, you lean away from pain, not into the pain. That's our, our natural response. But because it is good and it is all joy because of what he's working out of it, we can lean in a little bit because as fallen human beings, you know, God's image in us as humans is scuffed and tarnished and has lost its luster a little bit because of sin. You know, we we walk around not reflecting his glory in us the way human beings were created to reflect it. We've lost our luster a little bit because of sin. And so we lean in to the grindstone, as it were, when trials come. We lean into the, to the, the buffing wheel or whatever they call that thing. I don't know if you've ever seen one it spins real fast and it's got like a brush on it or whatever. and It'll polish something, but it'll also take the skin off your finger. Don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's friction applied in order to restore the luster, in order to bring it more and more, in, in order to bring us more and more into the likeness of Jesus as we were designed to be. And so he says in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, not the man who manages to avoid trials altogether. And see, in our American version of Christianity, that's almost the way that we've construed it is that the blessed person is the one who's managed to avoid trial altogether. God says, blessed, happy is the man. And that word could be translated as well. Who remains steadfast under trial. Our comfort is not of primary interest to God. Our holiness is and his glory in us is. And so, keep Trusting forward. If, if you are in the midst of trial right now and even have been brought as low as you can imagine being, you, you've been brought as close to disbelieving as you can imagine being, and, and yet you're still here. When you can't get up, just look up. Just look up. Just continue trusting forward. Trusting that the day is going to come again where he'll lift you up. He'll move you forward. If you've stumbled and fallen in the same old sin again, just keep obeying forward. Just get up and obey this time. And persevere in faith to his glory and for our good. Let's pray together. Lord, you know our hearts better even than we do. You know how hard it is for us really to accept uh, this imperative to count it all joy. When we go to great lengths and even spend lots of money to avoid trials, how then we would count it joy when we experience them is difficult for us. And yet, Lord, by faith, we just receive what you've said. We, we recognize that it's true. We know that it's true even from our own experience, many of us. That you did more in us, that you did more beautiful things in us when we were going through difficulty than you do in our times of comfort. And so God, would you just make us good stewards of the comfort? Lord, that we would, that we would use those seasons well. that we would use even the fruit of those seasons well in ways that you've intended for us. But Lord, would you begin to grow our understanding of when the seasons of trial reemerge, that we can lean in a little bit to them at least enough to inquire Lord what do you want me to see here what do you want to do in me here how do you want to be glorified in me during this time we thank you father for the promise that it's every good and perfect gift that comes from you, that you have our good in view. And so, Lord, would you work together for good those difficulties, challenges, and trials that we experience. In Christ's name, amen.